Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Ahead on Vince and Jason Save the Nation, a guest with a lot of experience in both cable news and working in a White House. Can't wait to have this conversation. Ahead on Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Vince and Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. We've got a special guest, one of my favorite guys in cable news, uh, someone who you're all familiar with, Sean Spicer. Sean, how you doing, brother? I'm well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I feel yeah, under. Absolutely. I feel overdressed. I'm only wearing like a, a polo between you and Vince. I, I like. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. Like, I thought I was kind of going to be underdressed. Yeah, when I, you put the polo on, you're like, gosh, I hope they're not wearing suit and tie this morning. That's right. <laughs> And well, look, sure Sean, enough. you got to work out on your guns. If you get like me and Vince, then, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the thing. That's the oh, key. okay. That's New Year's resolution for 2022. Work there, you on go. there you go. By the way, we should point out uh, what might be obvious to most of the audience. Sean, Sean Spicer is the former White House press secretary. He has a great show on Newsvax called Spicer and Company each and every night at six o'clock Eastern. And he's also the author of the best-selling book, Radical Nation, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's Dangerous Plan for America, all things we can talk about uh, today right here on the program. Uh, Sean, I, we were talking just before we started recording here about, you know, the cable, cable news world has a bunch of news this morning as uh, Chris Cuomo, the CNN host, uh, their highest rated CNN host at 9, 9 p.m. He's been benched, at least, for the indeterminate future. What do you make of this? You know, CNN taking its highest rated anchor and saying, at least for now, no more. Well, a couple of things. Um, first, it's great to be with you guys. Second, um, my guess is this is going to be temporary. Uh, they got caught. This is what it comes down to. Um, when New York's Attorney General Letitia uh, James let these text messages out, they had no choice. Um, but the reality is, is that they're a news organization, one that prides themselves on investigative journalism. And it looks like they didn't do the bare minimum to get actually at what the basis of what the relationship was with Chris Cuomo and right. his brother. The issue that I have here, both with CNN and with Cuomo, is that they lied. Um, in August, he said, you know, I'm not an advisor to my brother. I don't provide him strategy. I listen. We now know from these text messages that have been released that that's just simply not true. We also know that CNN basically didn't do the due diligence. The statement yesterday made it very clear that they hadn't followed up on this. Um, and so I think they're doing what they need to to check boxes and they'll right. wait a couple of weeks, they'll wait till the heat is off and then they'll come back. But the reality is, is that um, I, I'm actually a big believer in that for an organization that talks about facts first and lying and telling the truth, that the biggest sin that both Cuomo and CNN f committed was not being straight and honest. And um, so I, I think we need to remember that in this discussion. Yeah, he was giving advice to his brother, but he's his brother, you know, and at the end of the day, um, you know, any friend or brother that's, that's worth their salt is going to say, hey, let me see how I can help you out of this tough situation. Um, I, I think that's less of, a, of an issue to me than it is about the fact that they were very clear and sanctimonious about what their role had been. And clearly that was not the case. I mean, it, Jason, it kind of seems to me like that they were kind of permissive with him for a while because the, to be honest, the guy's the cash cow. I mean, it kind of is, it's kind of a perfect distillation of 
the advantages you have when all the money and power are behind you. Yeah, I, I feel that way right here on the Daily Caller. Um, That's right. Know, since, since I Untouchable, Jason out. Nichols. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it is uh, worthwhile to say that he, you know, from what I saw, I don't, I don't watch a ton of cable news. Um, but from what I saw, I never saw him speak about uh, the case or speak about his brother or stand up for his brother on air or stand up for his family name. Uh, that wasn't what he did. So he didn't. If he did find opposition research on these uh, accusers, he never aired it. He never, you know, put it yeah, but, on. His but program. I would argue, Jason, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think the the issue that I have is early on in the pandemic, he had him on multiple times over and over again, playing patty cake, where he talked about what a great job he was doing and all of the awesomeness of it. And then when the stories broke, both that he had transferred people to nursing homes. Second, that he was under serious investigation for sexual harassment. He then said, I can't talk about my brother, as you know. And it's like, well, you did when you wanted to prop him up. You just don't want to do it now because he's not, he's being accused of some bad things, both policy-wise in terms of COVID and then sexually as an employer. So I, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I don't talk about my brother, uh, but then I do when I want to talk about how great he is or promote him. And then secondly, get on air and say, I don't give him advice. And then the text messages come out to say, you do. If he had come and said, listen, guys, um, you know, I, I get asked all the time. He's my brother. I care about him. I'm going to give him the best advice that I can, as I would any other family member. Mm -hmm. I think most people would have understood that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But I think the idea that he got on air and was very sanctimonious. And frankly, that's the way he was, you know, as with, with a lot of guests where he gets on there and he starts telling them what the real truth is. And we all know the, the, the facts say the following and here right. he is now a victim of, you know, his own thing. And it's, it's just, if you think about how he would have interviewed himself, it sort of takes on a different meaning to say, oh, okay. Cause you would have been holier than now to everybody else. Well, let me, uh, Sean, you know, you, you've obviously spent a part of your career, much of your career in communication strategy, like how you would deal with uh, something, some incoming like this. I was surprised that Chris Cuomo didn't use his show in any way last night. So he's one last chance in front of a CNN audience, Monday night, that is. Um, he had an opportunity. He could have said something like, obviously, I support my brother. I give him advice, you know, and by the way, really grateful to CNN for understanding that. And I've got the full backing of the network. Thank you very much. This is the end of the end of the show. I mean, if he had said those Back things, you, John if he had send, said those things, it would have put CNN in kind of an untenable position. They, they probably couldn't have actually been able to say the next day, oh, we've suspended him. Well, I see, here's the thing. Once the text messages came out, I think that there's a lot of people at CNN who are very woke, and I think it was going to make it very difficult for them not to take action. Right. But I, and I think that what Cuomo was thinking was, if I just pretend nothing's wrong on my nine o'clock show and toss off to Don Lemon and as if there was no issue, then maybe it just goes away because no one will pay <laughs> attention. I think he thought yeah. that it wasn't going to take steam. I also think that he thought that, to your point, he is, he's untouchable. And he thought, what do you guys, you know, come on. You know, I said that I, you know, helped him out from time to time and I listened, but I don't think he appreciated probably the backlash from the news part of CNN, right. from a lot of the women there. And we've seen this with Jeffrey Tubin. After he was brought back, there was, at least according to media reports, a lot of internal pushback. I think you're seeing it again now where they are starting to realize whenever there's a, a, a dude that has a problem, whether it's Jeffrey Tubin not knowing how to act appropriately on a Zoom call, um, you know, or, or Chris Cuomo, that there's a point at which they can't do anything. Now, it's interesting because Don Lemon, 
Lasagna 10 o'clock has been accused of some very nefarious things. They haven't acted on that. But again, I think it comes down to the fact that when the attorney general released the text right. of Chris Cuomo to the governor's, his brother's chief of staff, he had no choice. Well, let's, uh, I, I think, Jason, unless you want to stick with uh, Chris Cuomo here, I think we should jump into some other topics, news of the day here. Uh, we've got um, the Washington Post report overnight uh, indicating that the next phase of the pandemic could be more restrictions from the federal government, uh, Sean Spicer. They're saying that as early as Thursday, that would be tomorrow, we're, broad, we're recording here on a Wednesday, um, that the White House could announce that all travelers returning to the United States would be told, required to self-quarantine regardless of vaccination status and regardless of citizenship. So if you're an American citizen, the Washington Post says the White House is contemplating making it so that you have to be self-quarantined in your home. And if you fail to do that, that you'll be subjected to penalties, including fines. Um, is this an appropriate way to arrest this pandemic? And where should we draw the line when it comes to liberty and public health? Yeah, so the first answer is no. Um, this is not, I, now I will say this, there's a lot of times, there's gonna be a lot of voices inside the White House. So I think, you know, who knows where the voice that's echoing and uh, and stating that is. That being said, I mean, I think these guys from a lessons learned standpoint heading into a midterm election, I hope they've realized that these lockdowns are counterproductive to any kind of political future that they might wanna have. So I, I, I think that that's a no. Um, I think people, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, wear, you know, wear a mask, wear a mask. And then suddenly it's get vaccinated, get vaccinated. And then even if you do all that, it's okay, now we're still going to lock you down. You, they have stumbled through this for so many um, months and contradicted themselves, been hypocritical, had failed policies over and over again. I think that most Americans are done with the federal government in particular, trying to tell them what to do. So I, I just don't see it happening. And frankly, if, it, if they try to make it happen, I just find, I will find it fascinating whether or not it's sustainable. Mm. So I have, I have uh, quite a few questions. Uh, I was reading a, a recent opinion piece that you wrote. And I just want to say before I begin, because I'm sure we're going to disagree on a few things, uh, that uh, I think you are one of the nicest people that I've ever met in cable news when I used to come on your show. Uh, I was, you know, very surprised, you know, because you hear things about people in the Trump orbit and you were one of the nicest people. You, Tucker and, and uh, Neil Cavuto, off air are some of the nicest people that I know. And I think well, it's thank important. Thank you, I appreciate I appreciate this, the, the softening it up there, Jason. The preamble, yeah. <laughs> don't you want to reserve a little judgment, Jason? Like, you don't know how this is gonna go. Yeah, yes. I was like, wait a second. Right. <laughs> So in a, in a recent opinion piece you wrote, you stated that the left, quote, the left hasn't gotten the message about how unpopular their agenda is in reference to Build Back Better. How do you reconcile that with the positive polling Build Back Better has? It's a great question um, because I think that it, two things. One, if you say something, would you like to build back better? I'm like, okay, that sounds great. I mean, it's like, do you want to go to lunch? Uh, it sounds great. I think I can agree to building back anything better, but I don't, I think the devil's in the detail. And what, what the funny thing is when they pull this, if you ask a question, do you support build back better? I mean, it, again, you're, you're testing a slogan and a bumper sticker. And I think fundamentally you're going to get an answer that says yes. When you ask people whether or not they give $1.6 billion to, to the media, when you ask them if they want to give billions to trial lawyers, which is both in that bill, I think that their minds change significantly and that they, they, they don't tell you 
the details in the bill. We're not talking about, I mean, think about it. I, I, most members of Congress who are voting on this thing have never read it. Um, and so I, I think when you start to realize the subsidies that we're giving out, I don't know how Democrats could support, for example, a provision that tells rich people that if you switch over to an electric car, we're going to give you a subsidy of up to like $10,000, but we're going to screw over a, a, a hardworking you know, person that's making minimum wage. So we're going to give a tax break to millionaires that can buy a Tesla, but nothing for folks at the middle class who are working two or three jobs. I, I, we're going to focus on giving back what they call the SALT deduction, which is the state and local tax deduction, which affects rich people in New Jersey, California, New York, etc. So I think that by and large, Jason, to your question, I think the bumper sticker and the slogan, I will give them credit for that. They, they sold something that sounds really good. But I think when you ask people, or if you inform people, here's what's in what you're being asked about, they're going to go, well, that's not what I, I, I agreed to. Yeah. So I Sean, I, I, hold, hold on, Vince. Let, can I just follow up real quick? Yeah, of course. So uh, Sean, when you break things down, um, so 77% of Americans are in favor of lowering the price of prescription drugs allowed by Medicare, uh, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. That's in the, um, that's in the bill. 60% are in favor of expanding subsidies for low and middle income Americans to buy health insurance. That's in the bill. 66% of voters support funding for affordable housing. That's in the bill. 61% are in favor of providing universal preschool for all American children. That's in the bill. 58% are in favor of creating subsidies that would reduce the cost of childcare for working parents. That's in the bill. 55% are in favor of providing tax credits to businesses and utilities that produce clean energy. That's in the bill. 78% of Americans are in favor of expanding Medicaid, or excuse me, Medicare coverage to include dental, vision, and hearing. That's in the bill. And 59% yeah. of voters are support a 15% corporate minimum tax rate for large corporations. And when, when you, you talked a little about uh, some of the things that may uh, affect taxes, how do you reconcile that again with the Trump tax cut that actually benefited wealthy people far more than it did middle class and working yeah. class Americans? So, so let me just say this. Um, I, I think a few of the things that you read off are sound very, you know, are, are very good. And I get why people agree with them. Because again, when you talk about, for example, companies paying a minimum tax, you go, well, that makes sense. Until you realize that, you know, it was, it's funny, I was having this conversation at Thanksgiving with my family. My dad was working for a company at one point when we were growing up, and we lived in New England that was thinking about moving to North Carolina. Um, we were just kind of joking about what that would have looked like. And part of the issue is that North Carolina was offering subsidies. States do it all the time right now, where they say, if you come to our state, we will give you, you know, lower your tax burden, give you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, countries do that too. There's a reason that Ireland is where so many um, co companies, especially tech companies, are now creating a massive presence because it's cheaper to do business there. So when people answer a question, and I think, again, it, it's the bumper sticker slogan question. Would you, do you think the company should pay their fair share? Of course, everyone's going to, most people say, of course you do. And when you tell them, do you realize that when you do that and act that policy, there's a good chance that corporation will move its headquarters out of the United States to another country like Ireland, taking the U.S. jobs with them so that, that it's great to talk about things um, in theory. For example, the best anecdote that I ever had is I spent three years as the assistant U.S. trade rep. And we would always talk about 
holding China accountable for their intellectual property rights. Thank goodness. And under the Bush administration, we filed the first intellectual property case against China in the WTO. And the interesting thing that happened as a consequence of that is China didn't show a US movie for I think it was six months. So we, you asked someone, should we hold China accountable? Yes, absolutely. And I do believe that in my heart. So don't, don't get me wrong. But no one explained the consequence that when you did do that, China's retaliation was not to show a single US movie for at least six months, which drove down massive profits for the Motion Picture Association. So or not, not the association, I'm sorry, for US filmmakers. Point being is that it's easy sometimes to tell somebody a bumper sticker. Would you like, you know, if I said to the, to you and Vince, do you want to go to lunch? And you said, yeah, we'd love to go to lunch. And I said, by the way, the devil in the detail is both of you are going to pay for it. And we're going to the most expensive restaurant in DC. You'd be like, well, I didn't, that's not what I agreed to. And I, I just think that we, we sell people on, or we don't, but pollsters in particular go out and sell people. Do you believe that, you know, sun should come out every day? You know, yes. But I think that when you get lost in the details, and explain to people how much that's going to cost them in taxes that we don't have the money to pay for it. Um, that those are, and and also some of the just the reality and consequences of their policies. That that's a whole different thing. We talk about um, you know raising taxes. When I was growing up, as I mentioned in New England and Rhode Island, my dad was a boat uh, sold boats, very expensive boats actually. And when they passed the luxury tax in 1992, Rhode Island lost more jobs than they had sold boats. And I'm trying to remember the exact statistic, but you know I think it was 15, 16,000 jobs in the state of Rhode Island alone. When you tax people. Sometimes my dad always taught me, you don't sell expensive boats to poor people. Um, and, and so the point is, is that I think saying something as, as a bumper sticker or a slogan and not explaining to people the full consequence and context in which you're asking them to understand a policy is where you can create anything to get a good poll result. Also, the, so, the, the, what, there's also a problem with selling this bill among Democrats themselves. So like, meaning like, all we're really hearing is the bumper sticker slogan. Like Nancy Pelosi, when she gets steps up to the microphone and she's asked about the details, by and large, she doesn't seem to know right. them. She keeps she keeps suggesting that the media needs to do a better job of telling people about what's in the bill. That's not actually the press's job, first and foremost. It's the job of the people who are trying to sell the legislation. Absolutely. And, right. and, and there's a failure there. But then when you dig into the legislation, kind of to your point, Sean, even if you are, say, a progressive Democrat, you're going to be very disappointed by some of what's actually in this bill. Yes. And among those things are massive tax cuts for rich people in the form of the SALT deduction being uh, elevated only to the benefit of the wealthy. And the IRS being empowered to actually go after middle class taxpayers in a way that will never actually happen to billionaires. It's often told, sold to the American public that, well, all we need to do is increase the enforcement capabilities of the IRS. This is what the Build Back Better legislation claims. And then we'll recoup all of the funds that the billionaires are hiding from us. That is not the way this right. is going down. These billionaires have tax attorneys. They can afford it. They know where to put their money in order to be legally compliant with the IRS. It's going to be middle income taxpayers who, who classify their money in the wrong way, who are going to all of a sudden be losing a lot of cash as a result of the growth of the IRS. Yeah. But again, no. the, 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 and, and so I would say this, that I, I think that the interesting thing to Jason's point is Democrats control the House. It's a simple majority, and they've got 50 seats in the Senate plus one with Kamala Harris to cast a vote. They can do this through reconciliation. It's them that have a problem passing this. Not Republicans don't have a say in the House of the minority. So it's interesting to me when this gets done um, or when this gets talked about, Democrats control the White House, the House, and the Senate. They can do this through reconciliation. 
they've chosen not to, or they can't get it through because Mansion and Cinema, their own party. So to Jason's thing, it, frankly, who gives it? You know, no one cares what I think or what anyone else on the Republican side thinks because Democrats can do it. It's it's as Vince pointed out, it's their party that's stopping it. The other thing is, you know, I mentioned this in the book, the the entire. Um, inaugural address, Biden keeps talking about unity over and over again. And I can't think of one thing that he's done to achieve unity. My point is that you can say something over and over again, as I point out in the book, you can say unity, or whatever you want, any phrase over and over again, happy, sad. It doesn't make it so just because you say the word over and over again. What you need to do is actually do something about it. And so they, they, there is a, a lot of disconnect between the words that are used and thrown around in Washington and the reality. So uh, I guess uh, bef- I have some follow-up questions. Um, sure. But I, I, first of all, I will say that, you know, Democrats have floated a, a billionaire tax and, and there's been a lot of opposition from people who are funded by billionaires, which includes corporate Democrats like uh, Manchin and Sin- Cinema. And of, and of course, all, you know, just about all the Republicans. But at the same time, uh, in, your, in your book, you discuss, you know, the lack of experience yes. uh, that some of Biden's cabinet secretaries and officials have. And I'm wondering, did you think Ben Carson was qualified to run HUD? And if so, what were those qualifications? Well, in the sense that Ben had grown up in, um, in, in a, uh, a low-income housing thing. He understood the plight. He understood it firsthand what it was like to grow up um, in, in urban housing in a system that entraps people and doesn't allow them to necessarily get out and buy. He never grew rent. up in public housing. Though. Public housing, correct. He, he didn't. He didn't grow no, up. No, no, he grew housing. up in, in a, but where he, he grew, grew up. in an inner city, yes. Right. And, and so, but again, I, at the end of the day, I think it's a fair question, whether it's, it's Ben Carson running HUD or, you know, and, and I make the point in the case, the, the difference though, and I get your point because I have a chapter in here called Biden Inc. I talk about all the people that are surrounding him. But at the end of the day, it's one thing if you want to pick off one person. And frankly, I think Dr. Carson, in terms of his medical background, his personal story, yeah. And, and frankly, you didn't see any problems with HUD. I mean, of all the departments in four years that had turmoil, HUD wasn't one of them. Um, Dr. Carson is a very- a little bit. Right. Well, I mean, I don't remember a single thing about um, how he, his stewardship of that department or any of the grants that they give or some of the things that they do, but that's, that's, I mean, so, so whether he was qualified or not in that specific role, if you look back on it, you go, okay, what did he do? My point is when you look at the current administration, this is the case that I make. I mean, you think about Kamala Harris, she's a 28% approval rating. The White House is, is sniping at each other. The reality is she had four years as a Senator. Right. Think about Biden to Obama, Gore to Clinton, Cheney to Bush. Vice presidents generally bring in a host of government experience to augment, supplant the experience of the commander in chief to help them do their job and to advise them. Kamala Harris can't be the Biden to the Obama because she spent four years in the Senate. She doesn't have the relationship. She doesn't have the world leader um, interactions. But wasn't Pence wasn't Pence like a, a freshman senator? Like no, he, he was a he was a two, he was a governor. He had been in the yeah, House of Representatives. He was in House, House leadership. He had served as um, uh, both the chairman of the RSC and the chairman of the House Conference. And, so and, he had been. Kamala just, Harris was was AG in California, correct? And then before in Alameda County. So she has some she has some pretty big executive experience, though. Yeah, but but what I'm saying is that's not what when you come to 
if you look at the history of vice presidents, mm-hmm. um, she, again, I don't think people were claiming that Mike Pence, I mean, there weren't stories about Mike Pence, you know, concerned about his position within the Trump administration. It's, it's the, it's, I, I guess you look at Pete Buttigieg, he ran, and I talk about this in the book that I mean, he ran a city of a hundred thousand that had 66 buses, 66 buses. And now he's in charge of the airways, seaways and highways. And so you wonder why we have supply chain issues. And part of the reason I believe is because you have the wrong people in the wrong places. But here's the point, Jason, you know, when, when Buttigieg was confirmed, I write about in the book about how Biden says, I'm pleased to have a guy who basically checks two boxes. One, you're one of the youngest members of a cabinet to lead a department ever. And second, you're the first openly LGBTQ person to lead a department. He had to say that because Rick Grinnell had been in a cabinet, but not led a department anyway. And, 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 and Buttigieg is thank you very much. I'm honored for this. I, I, I have the full exchange in the book, but the point is, he wasn't talking about his qualifications, saying, I'm pleased to have somebody who has led blah, 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 and has this kind of experience. When he chose Kamala Harris, again, it wasn't me. It was him that said, I'm going to choose the first woman of color to be the vice president. Okay. My point here is he didn't say, I'm going to choose the most experienced, the best person for the job. He's the one who made this about identity politics. Ben Carson wasn't chosen because... Uh, he checked a box. He was chosen because Donald Trump believed that based on his personal experience, that he was the best person to lead that department. His skin color, his gender never came up. With respect to Biden, these cho- these choices are about him saying that, be able to say, I checked a box. I appointed somebody that made me more left, that made me pro- more progressive. Because as I say in the book, he made a case during the campaign to be the most progressive president ever. Well, one of the ways you can do that is by having all of these people who check woke left boxes. So um, the argument I think against that, or, you know, would be that uh, Trump a lot of times appointed people uh, who may not have been qualified, but were somehow either uh, very obsequious to him or were big donors like Betsy DeVos who had never taught in a, in a, in a classroom, but yet she was secretary of education. So, you know, 66 buses is something versus zero classroom experience to be uh, secretary of education. Jared Kushner, what experience did Jared Kushner have to negotiate in the Middle East or to negotiate? Is it just that he's Jewish or like what what was it that was, you know, his experience working for the observer, being a real estate guy? Right. But the interesting thing about, for example, Jared, I mean, first of all, with Betsy, she had led uh, a, a long time effort in Michigan for school choice. She'd been very involved in the issue. So I, I would argue that sometimes maybe having a person outside the classroom, but, but here's the point, Jason, if, if you have, if you're successful, so you take what Jared did, what, what, what skill set did he have? Well, he came from a corporate background. I think if he had failed, you would have had a lot of fodder, but at the end of the day, Jared Kushner, with the experience that he had negotiated the Abraham Accords, which got multiple, multiple nations, back to the bargaining table, making agreements. I mean, we, start, we now have flights between Saudi Arabia and Israel, something that had never happened before the UAE and Saudi are talking. Um, there are Muslim countries um, that are now actually engaged in peace uh, with themselves that hadn't. So I, the, the problem, as you know, from like sports and everything else, when you win, when you have things that go right, 
people are willing to overlook a lot of stuff because they go, well, you obviously are right. But when you're not doing well, and right now I would argue that the supply chain issues um, are not going are well. Global, Kamala Harris's approval rating is at 28% and her own team in the West Wing is fighting with Biden. It's not going well. They're the ones that have to answer that question, not me. All I'll tell you, I mean, mm-hmm. everything that I've laid out, I think is objective. But I, I mean, you can have a conversation about Jared or anyone else. But if the argument is, well, they they didn't do a good job, and here's why. I think that's fair. But if you know, you, Sean, but but right. when they're succeeding, I think it's sort of like you know, so, you can, it's like a coach who's never coached before, but comes in and wins. You know, the, goes undefeated. No one's going to turn around and go, well, you know, you sure it was a good idea. So I, I, mean, I totally get that. And you are a Patriots fan. You can see that with Mac Jones, someone who has no uh, NFL experience, but is but is succeeding right now. So your problem is not the experience, which is what you, I believe, wrote in the book. It's right. more, you know, are you precocious? Are you going to get wins? And so it well, sounds like yeah, they've yeah, got but, a little but, bit of time in order to, to produce okay, those wins. Yeah, no? yeah. So fair enough. So like, like you said, like, look, I think, you know, because to your analysis, if Belichick picked Mac Jones and, and they went 0-16 or 0-17 or 0-18, like everyone would say that was a stupid pick. But at the end of the day, he saw something in the guy. And I, I, I you know, I, I think based on Belichick's history, you go, okay, he picks the right guys. Um, my point, though, is, is that you're right. If Buttigieg turns this thing around and we have, you know, ports are humming and things are flying through, then you know what? A year from now, you're going to come back and say, guess what? We picked the right guy. I would argue, though, 10 months into a pandemic, when Biden campaigned on three fundamental principles, one, eradicating and containing COVID, two, getting the economy back up and going, and three, unity in the country. Point to me one area where you can say, yeah, he's achieving that goal. And until he can, then I would argue that one of the reasons that I lay out in the book is because he chose the wrong people. Sean, the administration's been making a claim that the economy is essentially outside of their control. This is a global supply chain crisis. There's nothing we can do. The inflation is just is part of the pandemic. Until we get control of the pandemic, the economy is not going to get fixed. Uh, What what in your view can the administration do and what what have they done perhaps to actually damage the economy in the process? So it's funny because Marty Walsh, the labor secretary, was out in L.A. yesterday uh, examining the ports and he was asked, you know, they said, well, President Biden said that he wants these things up and running 24-7. He said, well, we're not up and running yet. I mean, it's going to take a little while longer, which I, I don't think is a shock. But then he said something else. They said, you know, he said, you know, it's never, they said something about what will it take to get things back to good or whatever. And he said, you know, it's never all, so there's always a little bit of bad. So don't, I mean, it was basically don't, don't, don't judge me, you know, at any point kind of thing. Um, I, I think a couple of things. One, we haven't done anything to encourage manufacturing to move back home. We continue to rely too much on China. Number two, we have paid people to stay home. You go anywhere in this country because it's not just a, a um, you know, they we, we haven't eased any regulations to make it easier for, for trucks to operate. Truckers have to abide by a California standard. They have made it almost impossible for independent truck drivers to operate in California to um, to move some of that cargo. So they've done nothing to alleviate it because it, again, you don't want from this administration do anything that would be seemingly helping non-union folks. Um, so there's a lot of regulations that could be changed. Um, number one, number two, the federal policy of continuing to, to support people who don't go to work in these COVID lockdowns. I mean, at some point, it's not just the truckers. Like there's no one to, there's no longshoremen to offload them. There's no truckers to drive them. There's no one to store the shelves. I mean, we all know this from going into stores and restaurants. You can't get people to work right now. 
And the reason is because in large part, they're getting, they were getting paid to stay home and there wasn't an incentive. So I think the, the government can actually play a very big role in getting out of the way. The, the government is probably the biggest impediment right now to the economy getting back and people getting back to work. Also, there's got to be, there is, of course, a massive downside to printing trillions of dollars of cash. So we've incurred a lot of extra debt over the course of the last several years, uh, including this year. The, the Federal Reserve only finally yesterday, Jerome Powell admitted, well, maybe we should back, uh, back off a little bit on some of these bond purchases. Uh, and so what's en the end result has been that we've had a, you know, trillions of dollars of cash injected into the economy. And when you start putting all that money into the economy, the cost of goods goes up quite obviously. Uh, and, you know, but I feel like the reason why it's taking so long, Sean, to, to back off on printing all that money is because Wall Street loves it. What, like, that's why you keep seeing these records in the S&P 500 and the Dow. It was only yesterday that they really took a big hit. And that was only after Jerome Powell was like, yeah, maybe we'll stop printing so much cash. Um, it, it feels like Washington, regardless of party, very beholden to the interests of Wall Street over the broader interests of the average American is looking to afford, you know, a meal or fuel. Well, I, I would argue, I mean, that, that what this administration is doing by pumping all this money in is trying to grow government. Um, I make the case very clearly in the book that, that Joe Biden is, is trying to become, not trying, he said, states it unequivocally, I want to become the most progressive president ever. So therefore, the more government spending that you can push, remember a lot of these programs that they're supporting and pushing through, Jason enumerated a few of them at the beginning, sunset in 10 years. Well, do you really think that that government is going to allow these things that people start to grow accustomed to, um, to just sunset? No. So it's it's a ridiculous price tag because you're not actually including the real cost of things because so, that's the way that Washington scores. And both parties do it. So Jason, I, I will admit that uh, I, I have become disgusted with how both parties handle um, tax dollars. That being said, the difference right now with tax cuts is that you're giving people back their money. When you're giving them more government and more spending, you're just growing the legacy of the federal government so that people become more dependent on government. Therefore, you create a greater need to maintain that dependency and those, that spending, which, in, which in, it, in itself then becomes enabling to Democrats seeking office because they say, well, if you want to keep the money coming, if you want to keep the program going, you've got to reelect me. Well, Sean, you know, I, I, I appreciate the fact that you sound like a Reagan Republican. Um, and it's been a long time since I've heard someone who sounded like a Reagan Republican. I think, um, you know, the, the MAGA, uh, you know, way of thinking has kind of replaced that. And I will say that, don't you think it's important also to acknowledge that in terms of inserting money into the economy during the pandemic, that Donald Trump was a big part of that and actually said that there should be more money given to, uh, to people during the pandemic to help them to maintain their lives. Yeah, so it's an interesting question. So I'll start with something that we probably agree on. I, I think that we spent way too much money um, during the pandemic and we see a lot of it, even in the CARES Act where there, were, there was money that was put towards people who needed rental and mortgage assistance, something like $49 billion and 40 of it still exists, right? So you have to ask yourself, there's only two possibilities. One, we made it too hard for them to get, right? That's, that's, gotta, that's a possibility. The other possibility is it wasn't ever needed, but it has to be one of those two. My point is, is that government in either case failed uh, to figure out how to provide assistance. 
The other thing that's unique about when Donald Trump did this, and as, as I said, again, I think we spent way too much money then, is at least he did it in a bipartisan way. It was, hey, we're in a global pandemic. It's a once in a generation thing. Let's come together, figure out what needs to get done. I want these five things done. Democrats want these five. Here's these 10, and now let's spend it. I, I still, frankly, think that that's way too much money, and it was done without... Um, uh, the appropriateness and the, the demand that was needed, meaning that they were putting it out and then hoping that they got it right. Mm -hmm. The difference now is that Democrats don't want or have not asked and will not allow Republicans to be part of the process. So Republicans have been shut out entirely on both sides of the, of the House and the Senate to be part of this discussion on any of it, the infrastructure, the Build Back Better, the initial stuff, none of it Republicans have been part of. So if you want to have bipartisan spending, it's got to be bipartisan. So that doesn't mean the vote. Like I even asked, I had two people on my show, two Republicans that had voted for two of the 13. And I asked them, I said, okay, I, I get if as a member of Congress, you can look and say, I, you know, I get all this money from my district. I don't agree with that, but I, I can at least understand that rationale. And they said, well, we weren't part of the process. So I, I have a hard time saying, well, then you spent 1.7, one, in that case, $1.2 trillion, and yet you didn't get anything for it. To me, that's, that's a problem um, because you're now just saying, I just wanted to, I wanted to bring home money and I don't even know if it really benefits my district. But, but Sean, weren't there Republicans involved in, in infrastructure? And then I, we also know in terms of criminal no. justice reform, which is a question I wanna ask you about, um, with criminal justice reform, it didn't come to fruition, but this was Democrats and Republicans, uh, particularly Tim Scott, who may be the leading candidate to be the next uh, uh, vice presidential candidate and nominee uh, if he runs along with Donald Trump, who you say is definitely gonna run. Um, uh, we, we have seen Democrats and Republicans actually tr trying to work together on some occasions and there were uh, Republicans who went to the White House, and they're the ones who, for the reason, they're part of the reason why um, their infrastructure bill got pared down to 1.2 trillion, based on you know rather than where Democrats wanted it initially. Correct. Well, again, were they part of the initial talks? Yes. But then when I've talked to them and asked them if they were part of the process, they were no. We were shut out. So they did they get start off? Yeah. From what I understand, there was initial discussions, but then they got shut out from there. So that's number one. They, I mean, according to all the 13 that voted for it in the House, they, they didn't get to participate in, in either the committee, the Transportation Infrastructure Committee, or in, or in the final drafting of the bill after it came out of committee. So, you know, from that standpoint, you know, and again, the Democrats don't have to do that. I'll, I'll give it to them. They have a majority. They don't need to do it, but you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I want it to be bipartisan and then completely shut you out. And I think that's, that's the difference with Tim Scott. I will say that I actually believe that Tim Scott could and, and very well may be the presidential nominee. Uh, I saw him speak last week again for uh, in for uh, at a public event. He's so articulate. He understands the plight of so many people. I think he would be a huge plus as the Republican nominee. So I don't think he's just a vice president. I actually think that that guy could easily carry the banner and the mantle of the Republican Party. But part of wow. the thing is is that fundamentally, Jason, I think that there's a disagreement on some of the criminal justice stuff that is getting brought up, i.e. especially qualified immunity for police officers, that there's a point at which there are things that may or may not need to be addressed inside the criminal justice system. But one, the question is, do they need to be federalized? And two, at some point when you disincentivize 
police officers from doing their job, which I think a lot of this stuff does, you end up creating situations where you've got the, the grab and go looting that's happening in a lot of major cities. You've got a de-escalation um, in, in police officers response. There was a Democratic mayor yesterday on one of the other cable networks, I think she was from Oakland, saying defund the police has, and her word was challenge, has been challenging because I can't get police officers, I can't recruit them, I can't get them into the new classes because people, no one wants to be a cop anymore. So that's the balance that's happening there is trying to understand how do you do things that ensure a more um, fair outcome for people that they get that there's not one system of justice for some people and some for another, but at the same time that you don't undermine the, the, the policing system that keeps people from wanting to enter the profession. More with Sean Spicer in just a moment, but first we got to tell you, Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. I was just saying on criminal justice, like what are we going to do about all these prosecutors nationwide who seem to be springing criminals out rather quickly? I mean, we just saw what happened in Waukesha where a guy with a long criminal rap sheet is put out on bail for, you know, just a thousand bucks is able to get out. And he uses the same criminal implement, the vehicle that he had already used to run his girlfriend over uh, in prior weeks to then mow down people at a parade, a Christmas parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin, horrific. And it's one of those things where that didn't have to happen. That, that, if, that, if that guy was held accountable in a way that was commensurate with his criminal past, there, he would have never been in public to commit that act. And yet it feels like, although that act of course stands out as such an exceptional moment, it's not the first time we've heard, we've heard many times of people who've committed crimes who had just recently been held by the justice system who'd been sprung out by so-called progressive prosecutors who uh, think that the cash bail should be very low or non-existent and that they should be right back out in the public. It feels like the, we've gone too far in the direction yeah, of and, and the I think it's important to point out okay. that bail is not punitive. That's not the way bail is supposed to work. Bail is for if you're a flight risk. So you don't hold somebody because you think they're a bad guy or anything. You, you hold them because you think that they're going to flee and not go to court. Um, and so, you know, you, you know, the Waka, Waka, Waukesha, Waukesha, <laughs> thank you. Waka Flocka, one of my favorite rappers. <laughs> uh, that guy was unequivocally, pro, you know, a, a bad guy, unless he's not guilty. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know guilty. all the facts of the case. He's probably guilty, but you know, Innocent until proven guilty. So everything he's been alleged alleged to have done uh, is is terrible. But you don't hold him because of that. You hold him because he's a flight risk. You don't hold I, him. I, I don't look. I'm not a lawyer, Jason, so I can't. But but I, I watch a lot of Law and Order, and I'm not entirely. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I do. So I I mean, my understanding is someone. It's not just a flight risk if they've committed a heinous crime, which running down your your girlfriend because you want to kill her because she's the baby mama. Um, would seem to me that it's not necessarily a flight risk, but you're worried about them committing a danger to the community or to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I don't know the the full extent of what the origins of bail are, but I would argue that if somebody to me posed a threat to other citizens that they should be held. Um, but, but to Vince's question, I think one of the things that's interesting is um, where the left has gotten right is you have all these prosecutors around the country, Kim Gardner and St. Louis and elsewhere that are funded by George Soros um, and they understand what what they're getting for that, which is people who are going to give them an outcome on on criminal justice and criminals that they want. So I, I think we we have gotten the message, I think, over the last few months about the importance of school boards. 
because of COVID and because of the lockdowns and CRT, et cetera. So I think that from a right standpoint, to answer your question, Vince, I would, I would argue that people need to understand the role that, that Soros is playing in, in races for prosecutor and DA, and that we need to get more involved in that the way that we, I think, have now with, with school boards. What I don't understand, and Jason, maybe you could answer this, what I don't understand is what's the point? Like, why did, why does Soros and, and other donors like him, but he's, he's, one, he's the biggest in the terms of donating to these progressive prosecutors, what is his goal, do you think? Jason? I mean, I just think it's, it's oh, sort of creating the world that you want. So you start thinking about the different levels and, and the mistake that, I wouldn't say it's a mistake, but I think that the, the, a lot of folks on the right get caught up on the, on the, um, the big rate, you know, hey, it's Congress, Senator, Governor, right. President, right? And that I get to put an ad on television. Um, what, what I think the left gets in particular, George Soros, is that if he controls the media, the local school boards, the local prosecutors, that sort of, you know, in its totality is a lot bigger and more important than having a couple members of Congress. Right. You can circumvent, well, you can circumvent the lawmaking process if you control prosecutors, because then you get to decide what laws you actually enforce and to what extent. Correct. Well, I'll, I'll just say this. Um, first of all, I don't see George Soros as much different than the Koch brothers or uh, Sheldon Adelson. And sure. I think what Sean said is, is absolutely correct that when you have the resources, you want to create the world that you want to create Sheldon yes. Adelson and, and others, you know, he, he's passed on, but you know, others, uh, big donors, they, they want, uh, they have a certain worldview and they also want to protect their financial interests. Bingo. I, so like with I, the Koch brothers, Jason, with the Koch brothers, I'll let you finish, but you can identify what their interest is. Like you can, you understand that like, okay, what they're really trying to do is they want cheap labor or whatever, whatever their end goal is. Like it does benefit them. Uh, and so you can sense that there. So, but what about with like, with Soros? Like what is, like who benefits from a lax criminal justice system? One that is far more favorable to criminals than it is to the people who'd well, like I to just, see them not I, in the community. Can I jump in there? I think that there's a big difference between they, they they both spend their money, right? So that's whether you take Adelson's or or Coke's on one side and, and Source on the other. But I think again, I'm I'm trying to give Source kind of a some credit here is that I think how you spend it matters and where you spend it matters. And what Soros has done is literally build an ecosystem. I mean, he funds so much of the left. They're training their prosecutors, the research arms, media matters, all those things, right. and so his influence is much, much greater because he's created this massive ecosystem that the news that we get, the people that are running for office, how they get trained, how they get staffed. Totally. I, I think that's very different um, than because, because I get what Jason's saying. It's like, okay, they're both buying stuff, but what you're buying matters and how much of it you're buying and where, because if you think about it, I mean, just if you, if you thought about it geographically, for example, it's like the Cokes and the folks on the right bought one state and Soros bought every town in the States. It's, it's sort mm -hmm. of like, you know, he, he, he's buying much more things that collectively are much more influential. Yeah, I guess my point, to, my question to Jason is like, I understand the mechanics like Sean's laying out, but I just don't, what's the point? What is the purpose of, uh, what's his end game? Well, again, I, I think he has a worldview um, and he wants to promote that worldview and protect that worldview. And, and you know, I, I think, again, just like Koch or the Koch brothers or Adelson or, you know, some of the other 
big right wing donors. Um, I, I also think that, you know, I don't understand the right wing obsession with him. Like there is this obsession. The left is not as obsessed with the Koch brothers but, but, as but the James, right is with Soros. The, the, the reason is because the Kochs like have a few handful of things that they care about, right? And and they're influence, they're trying to influence policy. So for example, they they largely fund concerned veterans of America and they they believe in how veterans care should be handled, right? Okay. That's a policy disagreement. What Soros has done is infiltrated all of society. He talks about media organizations. He talks about local prosecutors and school boards and research arms. And so basically what he's done is created a society where so many of the things that bubble up to the top, you don't even realize that you're you're getting your information from an organization he funds. People who he funds are being trained to run for various offices. That's different than what the and I'm I'm not I'm not I'm just trying to say that the the difference between what the Koch brothers in particular do is they own America they run they fund America's for for prosperity and a couple other organizations that seek to have a policy income on legislation. What Soros has done is figured out that I can make sure that what you see in your newsfeed today on social media, the people that you interact with are all people that I fire and fund, et cetera, et cetera. That's a vastly different world because you've, ex you've created an ecosystem in where people are walking around every day, almost exposed to a world that I've I've, I want to create for them. That's different than influencing policy. So I, do, I'm not, do you and, think and like I'm not, I'm not, each of them is doing what they want to do. So I'm not disagreeing with the fact that, that they, you know, that they're influential. Don't get me wrong. It's just, mm -hmm. I think the vastness of what Soros has done in some ways, and just so I'm clear, in a lot of ways, I admire it. I mean, I think that, yeah. that the right sometimes focuses too much on the, on the paid ads. And it's like, okay, I ran a 30 second ad in, in, you know, Maine two to influence one electoral vote. Right. I right. think what Soros has done is truly infiltrated society. And, and in, in a way that I, I think is in, from a political science standpoint, is is extremely laudable i mean i i give him credit for what he did and i think the right is way behind it and you know what's funny is i would say the exact same thing about the right and i would say the left is far behind particularly in the media ecosystem you know in the the right just dominated uh you know the the left had their big media outlets but the right dominated grassroots media they dominated am radio they dominated all that, and and that building that kind of media ecosystem uh, has strengthened their position, and it's gone into the blogs, and you get your gateway pundits, and your you know even if they're completely removed from reality, they have created this media ecosystem that uh, the left can't contend with. You know the left wing blogs are you know completely get swallowed by by the right in that regard, and so. Uh, I, I I would actually say it's the opposite, and, and you know even the my pillow guy who who has no real uh, policy aims, he just wants to affect society or make society as he sees it, and gets a whole lot of media play uh, on a whole lot of of uh, outlets, both you know below ground and above ground. Um, so I think that people with money to play with play this game. And I don't see that being any different on, on the left and the right. And one thing I, I do want to go back to is something that Vince 
said about uh, you know having a lax criminal justice system uh, that benefits criminals. What we've learned, uh, and hindsight is twenty twenty. But one of the things that we've learned is that heavy-handed over-policing doesn't work. Mass incarceration doesn't work. Broken windows doesn't work. You know, um, people who wanted to arrest people for small uh, infractions like smoking marijuana, all it does is fill up prisons. It doesn't necessarily make our society better. Well, and now, 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 let me, I, I'm going to jump into another question for Sean. Okay, off, well, can I, can that. I no, is, no, no, is no, there a me, chance that I could talk about what you just said? Because I, I think there's, I think you know, there's, we only I think got there's, a little bit of there's time. debate on it though, Jason. So like broken windows, if you ask New York police officers who uh, saw crime go down to record levels, uh, they say and broken that was windows seen around work. the country. But go ahead. When, when you ask, when you, Eric Adams, the incoming Democratic mayor of New York wants to bring back stop and frisk. I mean, there's like, yeah. so, so. The point is, like, you know, if you look at crime since the 1990s, the early 1990s, we had reached record low levels of crime uh, into the mid-teens. And obviously, it's gone up since then pretty dramatically, specifically homicide. And uh, so my point is, like, the idea that sort of policing and a strong criminal justice system doesn't lead to safer communities, I don't think the data supports that. I think the data supports exactly the claims that you're making. So now what are the trade-offs? Are there people who are going to be incarcerated longer? And as a society, do we have to grapple with that? Definitely. It's worth thinking about. And, you know, especially when it comes to preserving families. But the truth is prosecution, police, you know, busting people early when windows are breaking rather than before, you know, people are dying, it does redound, redound to the benefit of society, including and especially the most vulnerable people. Now, how listen, many, stop, how many, stop and frisk. Let, let's just take that real quick. And then I'm going to ask Sean a question. Okay. And okay. I know you, you, you've you got a lot to say. We, we can talk about it on Friday, I promise. Okay, so, good. But we've got Sean here for a limited amount of time. Yes, you're right. You're right. Um, it's funny to me that the right talks so much about civil liberties. Like that's their big thing. Your civil liberties, your civil liberties. No, I don't want to wear a mask. They throw a tantrum. But yet they're okay with someone stopping you and frisking you. Uh, and forget about the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. They, they're okay with that because they know what communities it happens in. And it doesn't happen in, in a lot of communities that have large right-wing populations. Now, going off of that, Sean, you said in, uh, in an interview that I was reading that, uh, that was on another publication, you said that, quote, you were never a champion of the First Step Act. Why is that? Well, I, I think because what, what I think gets missed in this discussion is, is we, we forget the why. Like, in other words, the First Step Act is dealing with someone who's already committed a crime and saying, okay, how do we get them out of jail and back, whatever. My point is we keep forgetting what's causing people to commit the crime to begin with. What are we doing to look at broken families, areas that need some economic development and opportunity? Because we, we keep thinking about how do we reduce a sentence, right? As opposed to what are we, why, why, are, why are we creating a system? Why is there a system that says drug dealing or gang activities are good in the first place? I would much rather start saying instead of the first step, first phase act, why are we having a society that is, has mass incarcerations, as you put it? What are the crimes they're committing? What are the reasons those crimes are committing? As opposed to figuring out what do we do after someone commits a crime? How do we get them out of jail quicker? Why aren't we focused on what are we doing to create stronger communities, stronger families, 
and, and preventing the crime from occurring in the first place. So I, I just, I fundamentally think too often government's answer is to, to mitigate a problem and, and, and figure out something that's not the root cause of it. And, in, you know, to, to quote Kamal Harris on immigration, let's figure out what the root cause is. And so my point would be on crime, what are we doing to better educate kids? What are we doing to give them more opportunities and activities um, so that they're not feeling like that crime is, is, you know, is an acceptable activity, uh, that, it, that there are no consequences for it? Um, because when you look at the prison population, and you start saying, okay, why are there a disproportionate number of blacks? Why are they coming from the places they're coming? I think that the smart move would be to go back and say, okay, what can we do to, to create a system that creates alternatives, opportunities, so that we're not dealing with that? That's my two cents. And that's why I think yeah. that we keep missing the mark in government. And it's not just the First Step Act. It's so many programs that government does. Even in our healthcare, we deal with stuff after people get sick as opposed right. to preventive. And right. it's this philosophy in government that let's deal with a problem after it happens, not what do we do to solve it ahead so, of time. So and, Sean, and so I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Were, were you done? Yes. Okay, Sean, I, I completely agree with you. And you know, you sound like a lot of the people who talk about defunding the police. That's exactly the argument that they make is let's find the root causes of crime. Let's deal with some of the societal issues. And rather than putting all of this burden on policing, because police, and, and I've spoken to a lot of police executives, and one of the things they say is you will not police yourself out of social problems. You know, yes. they should be I, I the backstop. But, but so I also that, think I, that's so, one of the arguments. Yeah. And, and, but I would argue that um, just so we're clear on my position. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's it's either or. I think it can be both. I mean, I think that, for example, community policing, especially in in um, sure. urban areas, is a good idea. I like seeing cops walk through the neighborhood, cops on bikes, so that they're not seen as these guys that just drive by. That they develop relationships in neighborhoods. Um, but I, I, so I don't look at it as an all of the either or strategy. I look at it as what can we do to to bring more opportunities, to bring more education, to uh, to key areas, whether it's cities or neighborhoods and in, in, uh, in, you know, wherever around America. But I also believe that police do play an important role Absolutely. in keeping it safe. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm for both. Yeah. And, and I, I just want to say in terms of this, the first step back, and you talked about stopping crime before it happens rather than letting people out sooner. Um, and one of the things that we know is that uh, uh, black, black of offenders uh, spend their sentences are usually about 20% longer than white offenders uh, for the same crime. Um, but Title I and Title V, and it's, and take a snapshot, all of you Trump supporters out there, take a snapshot. You're going to hear Jason Nichols actually defend a Trump policy. So <laughs> this is something that you should be excited about. Um, <laughs> Title One and Title Five. <laughs> I got it. Right yeah, <laughs> aired on Newsmax tonight. Um, title One and Title Five of the First Step Act actually focus on crime reduction by lowering recidivism, which is a, a big issue. Is that there is a small sub? I think we would all agree, Vince. Uh, I think you would agree as well that there is a small section of our society that commits serious crimes. Yes. Right. Yeah. And with that small section a lot of them commit crimes over and over again. That's right. So what do we do? And, and, and the other thing is those people who commit crimes, you know, and we can debate about what should constitute a, a crime that should put you in jail versus maybe 
get you help, like like drug possession. Um, but when those crimes happen and people get incarcerated rather than getting help, that actually hurts families. That takes fathers away from households. That takes mothers away from households. Um, so if we want to help families. We should find ways to help families. Sometimes you need to find alternatives to incarceration and also focus on reentry and lowering recidivism, which are things that the First Step Act is the first step toward doing. And it was a bipartisan piece of legislation. All the Democrats voted for it. Eight, only eight Republicans voted against it. Um, to me, it made sense at the time. And you know, I guess I'll ask Vince if, if you would agree. Yeah, I I uh, I find Sean's point to be really compelling, though. It's like that that's good. I like for obviously preventing recidivism, preventing people getting back to jail is good. But principally, if we're looking at first principles, how do we fix a society and how do we get to the point where we don't have to even worry about those these questions? The answer is we need more complete families. We need more fathers in the household. We need you know more people going back to church. Uh, for for one, that that's like disappeared as the country becomes more secular. We need to stop the fentanyl getting across our border. It's like we're pretending like we don't have this massive health crisis that is crushing, in particular, forgotten towns across the country um, more than anything. So, so yeah, I obviously I, I'm very pro stopping recidivism, but boy, I feel like our country, the stuff, the rot that we have, has less to do with. Um, you know, the length of people's sentences and more to do with why are these crimes being committed? Why is this town in such disarray? I, I also, and I, I want to switch gears here because you talked about church. Yeah. And Sean, so I want to ask you, um, in your book, a, a big part of your book is about supporting religious freedom. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's a bedrock of our country. I think all three of us would agree with that. Uh, what is your opinion of, say, Trump and, you know, who was, who was your former boss, uh, who wanted to create a database to track Muslims in the country and call for a ban of Muslims coming into the country? Isn't that kind of antithetical to the idea of religious freedom? I remember vaguely what you're referring to is during the campaign. And I, I remember, it's funny, there's a book that I was starting to read. I've got it by my nightstand where he analyzes that this, this one professor down, I think it's the university of Austin analyzes that statement. And, and it's an interesting dynamic. So the answer, just to be clear, the way I understood that interaction is not how it's being portrayed, but that being said, just to be clear about my position, cause I can say it now. Um, I, I don't think tracking anybody by their religion is ever a good idea. Okay. And so I, I guess, um, my next question, I guess we can kind of switch gears here. And that is, is Joe Biden the duly elected president of the United States? Yes. This, the, um, the electoral college affirms the vote and that's how our country works. Uh, that being said, as I've said before, I'm a believer that in especially Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, Nevada, sending out ballots to every single person, which is not how the system worked by people who did not have the proper authority to do it. Uh, I mean, for example, Brad Raffensperger in Georgia engaged in a consent decree agreeing to send every person in Georgia a ballot. That's not how it works. You don't just get to claim that because there's a pandemic that you get to do that. So I, I, I do have a problem with how things were conducted in, in four or five states in particular. Okay, but do you think that some of the changes that have been made by, by local governments 
that will make it easier for elected officials to literally overturn elections. Isn't that antithetical to, to democracy? The only people who should ever decide an election are voters, voters who cast a legal ballot. That's it. Full stop. The problem is that I think in a lot of states when you're, uh, you know, for example, I'll look at ballot harvesting, which is this idea that somebody can go through, whether it's an apartment building or a union hall or whatever, and collect everybody's ballot has been outlawed in almost every single state. Now, suddenly the Democrats have picked it up as the cool thing to do. I, I, I think any sense of intimidation, anything that doesn't ensure that, that the integrity of the vote is is um, is paramount is, is wrong. In 2005, President Jimmy Carter wrote an entire commission brief on the concerns about mail-in ballot. And suddenly that was the, until Democrats realized that that worked to their advantage, they suddenly abandoned all of that. Where is the concern about fraud? I, I, I think it should be easy to vote and hard to cheat. That's it, full stop. I think everyone who wants to cast a ballot should, but I don't think that, you know, when you look at, for example, Wisconsin, they sent out notices to people in largely counties that were Biden counties and allowed them what they call cure their ballot, which means if they came in and they had a problem, they would call them and say, you know, dear Mr. Lewis, um, your ballot looks like it has some problems on it. Would you like to come in and cure it, which means you could fix it, change your signature if it didn't match properly, whatever. But they only did that in certain counties. So I, I, again, I think that so much is lost in the context of what happened last cycle that it needs to be. Um, I, I think that it's just it's a fascinating discussion because the rules that all got changed benefited one party. Okay. And Republicans, you know, and, and I love the fact again, that you, you really sounded like a, um, like a Reagan Republican throughout this, this interview. And uh, I never thought that I would miss Reagan Republicans <laughs> because I think Ronald Reagan is, is an interesting uh, historical figure, but you know, and, and, you know, being that we talked a little bit about mass incarceration and some of the things that that happened, um, you know, a lot of that started with Ronald Reagan and, and the Anti-Drug Abuse Act and what that did to black families, including families, family members of my own. We could go into a long thing about that. But but Republicans used to be during that era, the party of family values and prioritized families. Uh, yeah, you were very critical of Pete Buttigieg for taking family leave uh, to bond with his new baby. So no, 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 that's not that. First of all, that's not true. Okay, here's what I would say. He didn't tell anyone he was doing it. He took two months off. Then when he got caught, he said, I've been on parental leave. And it's so great. He didn't tell anyone at the front end. He talks about this great Biden policy that they had that no one apparently knew existed. And it wasn't until he was called out in the middle of a global supply chain crisis when he said, oh, yeah, I've been on paternity leave uh, for two months because this administration has a great thing. But wasn't he, he holding meetings? Policy, hold on. Hold on. Oh, if he was sorry. proud of the policy, why didn't he say at the front end, I'm going to be taking leave? I took I took a few days off when my two kids were born. I don't have a problem with that. I think it's very important for both fathers and mothers to be able to have time to, to bond. Um, especially with federal law up until just under the Trump administration that didn't allow adoptive parents the same uh, parental leave as biological parents. So I've been very supportive of that. He, he wasn't honest about what had happened. And, and I think that that was a problem. Secondly, uh, look, I was on active duty when my, when my daughter was born. I was back at work in 10 days. I, I don't I think it's great to be able to do this, but in the middle of a supply chain crisis, if you're the Secretary of Transportation, sometimes you don't get to have all of the bells and whistles that go along. And 
you know, you may disagree with that, but I, I was back at work in seven to 10 days and I certainly wasn't running the Department of Defense at the time. But is, isn't it, aren't we living in a different world now is, is what I would argue. Um, many of us, particularly, you know, he, he's not an active duty serviceman. Uh, he is somebody who can work virtually and the reports are that he was still holding meetings during that period. So he was so why essentially he, why was still it, working. Why wasn't, so why, why is he leaving it to someone like you to explain instead of him at the front end when he knew the children- I'm taking his wrong. explanation though. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is that he, he could have easily said, hey, my, I just, Chastin and I just uh, finalized or, or the paperwork for this adoption. And so we're going to be doing this. He didn't. He wasn't straight with us. It was like Cuomo. They weren't straight with us until they got caught. And I think that's my problem with what he did. It's the middle of a global supply chain crisis. He didn't say, I'm going to take leave and give the deputy secretary the power to conduct business on my behalf. He said, which, I mean, that, that's what should have happened. So my issue is that they, they claimed to be proud of a policy after they got caught. Okay. Yeah. And so would Buttigieg, uh, you as a Republican strategist, think, think of yourself as a strategist now, would Buttigieg... Uh, you know, there's there's been these kind of debates whether uh, Buttigieg will be the nominee will. in 2024 uh, and that he will surpass Kamala Harris and that there's some sort of rivalry between the two. I'm not I'm not necessarily I know that's just Washington rumor and we hear all kinds of things. You were in the Trump administration. You've heard rumors about things that were going on that may or may not have been true. So, you know, right. Uh, our viewers, you can take that for what it, what it, you know, what it's worth. Um, do you think Buttigieg would be a more formidable opponent for whoever the Republican nominee yes. is than yes. Kamala Harris? Yes. Yes. He's, I mean, look, he's a veteran. He is articulate. He's a smart guy. I don't look, I just think he's the wrong guy for the department of transportation. I, I think he is smart. Um, and, uh, I think from a from a left standpoint, he would motivate people. There would be this sense that again, there's always about the first. So you know, to, to elect the first openly LGBTQ person, um, then, then yes, a hundred percent. So I, I think he would be very competitive, um, and I do think he'll be the nominee. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll end with that prediction. Sean Spicer stopping by. Uh, Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Sean, thank you for being generous with your time. You can find Sean thank on you. Newsmax 6 p.m. each night. Uh, and uh, radical great, nation. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. if you need yeah, if you if you need a Christmas gift or a Hanukkah gift. <laughs> yes, that's hey, right. Hey, for, hey, for Hanukkah, radical hey, nation. Hey, Sean, real quick before you go, what did you think of Melissa McCarthy's uh, depiction <laughs> of you? Wrong book. Uh, <laughs> I thought I thought initially it was funny, Jason. Uh, the first one I, I got a kick out of, and frankly, not only was it funny, but I kind of was like, all right, Sean, you had a you had a difficult week it's kind of uh well deserved i think i got a little personal and vitriol towards the end um, yeah. so that's how that's what i'll say about that and sean one thing i will say i really appreciate you because you may be the only person in the world that i think i'm a better salsa dancer than so <laughs> that says a lot <laughs> hey, john spicer thanks a lot sean thanks we really guys. appreciate it take care thank you